interesting passages. Um, that is a resurrection appearance of Jesus to two men on the Emmaus Road. So we just have a couple weeks left in the Gospel of Luke. But this is a fascinating story because if you know the story a little bit about it at all, these two, uh, these two travelers don't know that they're really talking to Jesus as they're traveling along wondering about what happened during the crucifixion and the stories of the resurrection. It's a fascinating story, and it's a strange story because God keeps the travelers from recognizing Jesus for quite a while until he determines that it's best to open their eyes that they can see who Jesus is. Now perhaps Luke interviewed these disciples and got the information there. He heard their great story from somewhere, but it made quite an impression upon him because he spends so much time and gives so much space at the end of his gospel account to this story. I also want you to notice two theological points that are being made by Luke, as you'll see highlighted. One is, is that we need to have faith in the scriptures concerning Jesus Christ. That comes out as a theme. We have to have faith in the scriptures that speak to us about Jesus Christ. And the second theological point that you'll see made is that illumination, the opening up of our mind, has to come from God. That he is the one that makes us able to recognize who Jesus Christ really is. So please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. I've printed it for you in your bulletin as well. Let me read the story to you, and then we'll take a look at it together. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that, he had, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the script, all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it's toward the evening, and day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while, we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed. For he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road 
and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So Luke's desire for everyone who reads this climactic ending to his gospel account is that they would believe in Jesus, the crucified and risen one according to the scriptures, for our redemption. Our redemption, Jesus offered himself as a ransom price for our sin. That's what the redemption means. And consequently, then, we've been rescued from the bondage to sin, its power over us, its guilt, its shame. Some of you maybe will believe for the first time in Jesus Christ, and for those of us who already believe, we're called as we read this to believe all the more so on Jesus and his redemption. In these two ways, in verses 13 to 27, we learn that he is the risen Redeemer as seen from the Scriptures. And in verses 28 to 35, that he is the risen Redeemer as seen in the breaking of the bread. Now, we're not going to attempt to try to integrate all the resurrection appearances and accounts from all four Gospels. That's a very involved task. But things that you should notice in Luke 24, as we've been looking at it, you've noticed already, of course, that it's taking Luke a long time to tell us the story of the resurrection. Because last week, in verses 1 to 12, we had the resurrection take place and the initial reports but no one in Luke's account has believed yet. In our passage this morning, we have an appearance and we see the beginning of people starting to believe after the resurrection. And next week, as Luke concludes the gospel in verses 36 to 53, he appears, Jesus appears to them all, and they all believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then very shortly, they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit as his apostles to preach the gospel. So may the Lord open our eyes even further this morning to understand what is in the scriptures for us. So first, Jesus teaches us that he is the risen redeemer as seen in the scriptures. So we have these two disciples, it's Sunday morning, it's Sunday, the day of the resurrection itself, and they are traveling on the way back to Emmaus after Passover and celebrations. And it's during this traveling, this walking, that Jesus starts to walk with them and have a conversation with them. In the beginning of the story, again, it's that very day, that very day of that resurrection, the two of them are going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they're talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they're talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, we don't know who these two disciples are. We know that one of them later on gets named. His name is Cleopas, and, uh, but they're not part of the 11. In fact, they return and report to the 11, we see in verse 33, and we don't really know anything about them. Although, of course, in church history, as with many things, speculation abounds, but it's not that helpful in this case. And Emmaus, even that city is very difficult to pin down archaeologically where it is. Um, two most likely suggestions are that it's about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem, as this text says. Other variants of the New Testament say it's about 20 miles uh, northwest of Jerusalem. That's actually the traditional site that is mentioned. But the original readers know, knew, of course, where it was. We don't know yet for sure. But as these men are walking home, they're having this wide-ranging discussion. They're talking about all the events of the week. Well, what events? Well, the entry into Jerusalem, remember? I mean, it was a long time ago as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, but it was only a week ago that Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphantly upon that donkey, and people were hailing him as the king of the Jews. 
and excited about the coming of the kingdom. But then things turn, and there's opposition throughout the week as Jesus teaches in the temple, and eventually he seems so quickly crucified and snuffed out on that cross. We're probably also talking about the Old Testament Scripture and about the Messiah, about Jesus' own teachings, and the report of the women who came back from this empty tomb and the testimony they gave of an angelic vision speaking about the fact that Jesus is still alive. And they couldn't figure it all out. Especially the cross thing, let alone this resurrection concept. Is Jesus the Messiah or not? If he is, then why did he die? Did he succeed in his mission? Or did he fail in his mission? And what's the future going to be now? What should we be doing? You know, perhaps some of you this morning are in a similar situation. Many people are, our friends and our family, who don't fully grasp the meaning of Jesus dying on a cross and rising from the dead. That is more than just some kind of a religious story. But it's historically true in the foundation of our faith. So how do we come to the correct conclusion regarding it all? It's by looking at the Scriptures and praying that the Lord would open people's eyes. Well, verse 15 repeats the fact that they're discussing this intensely together with one another in a dialogue, almost in a debate, if you will, between one another, trying to figure out what's going on. It's at this point that Jesus, the risen Lord, starts walking among them. And God prevented those two men from recognizing who he was. He simply appeared like another pilgrim who was returning to Emmaus or somewhere else after the Passover celebration. So we expect that they would instantly recognize Jesus and as who he is and in his resurrected state, but God blinds them, if you will, keeps them in the dark for now. They were already unbelieving, and he wants to keep them there for a while. But, you know, that bothers us as we read the storyline. I mean, why would God do that now? It seems like he should just open their eyes immediately. It's because he wants to reveal it to them in his own time, his own manner, his own way for the greatest glory that he can gain. In fact, it's only going to be a few hours later, and he'll reveal it. By at least three means, Jesus himself is going to be the one who teaches them about his cross. That's pretty cool. Jesus himself is going to be the one who teaches these disciples about his cross, and then to us who hear, and the rest of people who read the New Testament. Secondly, he's going to be rebuking them and everyone who's slow to believe. Slow to believe the scriptures. Slow to believe Luke's gospel, if you will, because it's true. And it's to be believed immediately. And third, he's preparing these two men with some background and theological understanding, as you'll see, as he explains to them the scriptures, so that when their eyes are opened, they will have an astounding understanding of what actually took place and be able to proclaim it. It would be a great time of glory and praise, as we'll see. And so Jesus has this conversation, and it begins in verse 17, and he said to them, so what's this conversation you're having with one another? And they stood still just looking sad and saying, one of them named Clopas said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? So in the beginning of the conversation, Jesus hears some of it, and it's friendly nature, and he asks them what they're talking about. It appears that he's this ignorant pilgrim walking alongside them, entering into their conversation. And it stops them in their tracks 
And the text says that they're saddened. And Cleopas is shocked that somebody could not know what had just happened in the city of Jerusalem. Or that if he, doesn't, if he does know, that he wouldn't care or wouldn't talk about them or wouldn't be interested in these things. And so he incredibly you know, asks Jesus if you know, he's such an outsider, such a loner that he doesn't even understand and remember the events of what's been going on. You know, we might say if you've been living in a corner all week. How could you miss it? I mean, everybody knows what happened about the triumphal entry, about Jesus you know, cleansing the temple, about his teaching, about this mock trial and how, how wrong it was, and, and then his crucifixion. But the irony of the story is pretty, pretty blatant, isn't it? Pretty in our face that Jesus is actually the only one who really knows what's going on, like at the deepest level. He knows exactly what's going on, and so it builds the tension as we read the story. And Jesus is going to explain in a little bit, but first of all, he wants to hear what they think. And so he simply says, well, what's your reading of things? How do you understand what just happened? In other words, what kind of things? What things? And they said to him, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they've even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So they got the story, quite a bit of it. They speak about Jesus as a prophet from Nazareth, from where he was from, mighty in word and in deed before God and man. They're exactly right. That's who Jesus was. The prophets and the scriptures speak about a prophet like Moses, who would be an eschatological prophet. That is a prophet that would come at the end. The Messiah himself. Who would inaugurate a new era of revelation, a new era of redemption, and of the kingdom of God. In Deuteronomy 18.15, it's promised that the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it's to him you shall listen. And this prophecy is quoted repeatedly throughout the scriptures as speaking of Jesus. And so even when we get to the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke, back at the very beginning of Jesus' opening preaching in Luke 14 or Luke 4, we read, and he's in, a, he's in a synagogue, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set those at liberty who are oppressed. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Saying that this is speaking about him. He is that prophet. Cleopas and his friend are exactly right. But they misunderstand because they fail to believe enough. They understood that the Messiah would be this great prophet, but they did not understand that it also included that he would be a suffering servant from the same prophecy of Isaiah. And that this redemption 
would then be the full redemption that they were looking for. Jesus did redeem. It says they were hoping he would be the one to redeem Israel. But they're looking for a redemption only on the glory side, not on the side of sin. But Jesus did redeem by pouring out his own blood for our, in our place for a full forgiveness of sins, to release us from our guilt and from the power of sin in our lives. And then Jesus would be raised from the dead subsequently for our justification. That's the fullness of redemption, including what they're thinking about, which is going to be coming at the end in the return of Jesus in glory. But we have to have a part in sin's redemption first before we're going to have a part in the glorious redemption that's coming. And you notice they blame the right people. They blame the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, for delivering him into the Romans for crucifixion. That was true. And then along with many others, as I mentioned, they were hoping that he would be the one to redeem Israel. In their minds, free them from Rome, bring in the kingdom in all of its fullness. Their hope was that when the Messiah came, there would be this sudden, open glory of the kingdom and a political Messiah. And all their hopes, you see, were dashed to pieces by the cross because that wasn't in their storyline. They could only see a theology of glory, but not a theology of the cross. They could only see a theology of glory, but not a theology of suffering. That, by the way, has been a big problem throughout the history of the church, is to fail to have a deep theology of suffering and of the cross. That is the symbol of our faith. And the glory is coming, just like Jesus' resurrection took place. And we notice also they're discouraged because it's the third day already. Why? Well, perhaps it's because of a Jewish belief that on the fourth day the soul left the body, and so there's now no hope, it's just too late. Or maybe it's because Jesus talked about the third day. I mean, they remember that, and something significant was going to happen on that day. But there's no body, whether he, there's no dead body, there's no live body. And so, but we as the readers of Luke, you know, we want to go back to some of the things that Jesus said to them so openly to the disciples and people heard. In chapter 9, 22, Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus was very clear, very early on in his ministry, that he would die the way he would die and that he would be raised from the dead. In Luke 18, it says, taking the twelve, his closest disciples, he said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Again, very clear what the prophets spoke about, what would take place to himself, and what, how he would rise from the dead. And then in Luke 24, we recently read in verse 6, the angels said to the women and reported to the eleven and the two that he's not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Luke wants us too to remember the truth and to speak it to ourselves. And so these two men on the road recount the women's testimony of the empty tomb that they said Jesus is alive. They continue to recount the corroboration of Peter and John who visited the tomb, recorded in John 20, and they went there. 
but they focus upon the fact that no one's actually seen Jesus yet, as that they know of, which is the real proof that they would need. But this is amazing. They repeat all the evidence themselves, yet they repeat it in disbelief. And we want to shout at them, why don't you just believe? It's so clear. And they should believe. But then this, this whole situation just heightens the tragedy. And the irony, of course, again, is they're staring right in the face of the resurrected Jesus and they don't see him. They're so close, yet they're so far. And we have to wonder if that same irony takes place even in this room this morning, where some of us might be so close to belief, but yet so far. Or you think about your friends, and you think about your family. You think about, I think about some of my friends and family who could tell you so clearly all these things about the Scriptures and what they teach, who Jesus is, but yet they don't believe it. They can be so close, but yet so far. So if you're not a true and full believer in Jesus Christ, you need to respond to the evidence by putting your faith in Jesus and actually believing what it is that is presented to you this morning. Well, then we continue on with the story starting in verse 25, and Jesus finally speaks in our story here and says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he responds to them with great emotion. It's almost like he can't take it anymore. He's just got to speak to them. They're foolish. He's saying you're unintelligent. They're slow of heart to believe. That is, they're dull, spiritually speaking. So even though they think they're so spiritual. Regarding these events they just related about the Old Testament prophetic message about the Christ, they don't seem to understand what they're talking about. Jesus Christ's glory and his resurrection. And it would continue because Jesus then, 40 days later, would, would ascend and reign on high, and eventually, of course, he'll return in glory. And so beginning with the Moses, beginning with law, and all the prophets, and all the other sections of Scripture, Jesus explains this truth about the Messiah to them. That is about himself, even though they still don't see that he's the one speaking to them, really. He's still unrecognizable. But notice the alls in the passage. The whole Old Testament speaks about Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures concerning him. Jesus Christ is on every single page in the Bible. So surely at this point, the two disciples are stunned by this seemingly ignorant traveler who is now going to explain all of Scripture to them. And their hearts are, of course, as we find out later in the story, are getting strangely warmed to the truth. But they haven't given themselves fully over to believe the truth at this point. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have been there? To think about, what did Jesus talk about? Did he start with Genesis 3.15, the first major promise in the Bible about the seed of the woman? And did he talk about Genesis 12 and the blessing that would come through Abraham? And did he talk about Genesis 22 and the sacrifice of Isaac that was interrupted? Did he talk about the Passover and the Exodus and how all of that speaks about redemption from sin? Maybe he talked about the Sinai, the covenant at Sinai and the need for a mediator. Maybe he talked about 
all the sacrifices and the priesthood. Maybe he talked about that passage that we just read in Deuteronomy 18.15 about the coming prophet like Moses. Maybe he continued in talking about many of the Psalms that we know are Messianic like Psalm 2 and 16 and 22 and 69 and 110 and 118. And as we know, really all of them are Messianic. They speak about the sonship of the Messiah. They speak about the kingdom. They speak about suffering. They speak about glory. And maybe then Jesus also combined it to talk about the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, about the suffering Messiah. Maybe he talked about Jeremiah 31 and about the promise of the new covenant and how in the new covenant the Holy Spirit would actually come upon the people who believe in God. Maybe he talked about Ezekiel 36 where it says that you have to be born again. Maybe then he talked about Daniel chapter 7 and spoke and explained who the Son of Man really was. And you wonder, did he have time? How long was this journey to go and talk about the whole history of redemption from the kingship perspective of David and the exile and the restoration and how that would speak about the new covenant and its coming? There's so much that could have been talked about. The most significant application for us this morning comes from Jesus' own lips right here. And that is, we as God's people need to know and understand the Scriptures, especially the Old Testament, and how it relates and predicts the fullness of who Jesus would be and what He would accomplish, so that we know what He would have talked about to Cleopas and his friend. So apply yourselves to learn the Scriptures. As it was even mentioned this morning, Join a small group this coming fall and study the Bible with others so that you can learn and to put your faith more strongly in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Well, second, Jesus teaches us that he's the risen Redeemer as seen in the breaking of the bread. And so as the story continues, Jesus acts as if he's still the ignorant traveler, although we know he's not very ignorant at this point uh, for all these things he's just told them. But he just wants to go on and travel farther appears that he's just going to keep moving on, but that's all to get them to invite him in to their home. So the disciples' eyes are going to get opened to Jesus and who he is at the table when they eat, and then they're going to quickly run back in the middle of the night, basically, to get back to Jerusalem to talk to the eleven. So in verses 28 to 31, so they drew new to the village where they were going, and he acted, that is Jesus, as if he were going to go farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. So they're getting close to Emmaus, where the original two would reside. Jesus acts if he's going farther. It gives them an opportunity, as I said, to extend hospitality as a part of the culture and invite him to stay. The sun is going down, and so it would be uh, unheard of to let travelers go on, but you need to invite them in. And so they prevail upon him and persuade him to stay, but of course, what they really want is they want to hear more about what Jesus has been telling them. That's the true motivation. And so they all recline together at the table for a meal, and Jesus plays the role of the host at this meal, takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and distributes it. Why? Perhaps they ask him to do it because of his overwhelmingly impressive teaching, and uh, they sent something special and offer him that role. 
But it appears to be a normal meal to us as we read our passage here. Yet, as we read the Gospel of Luke, if we're a discerning reader, we know, well, there's a little more involved here that Luke is trying to hint at as this is being told to us. And we ought to expect that, because what did Jesus just get done doing? He just got done explaining how so many of these passages in the Old Testament, even obscure ones, pointed to very clear, powerful realities in the New Covenant era. And so, true, there's no meaning attributed to the bread here. There's no mention of blessing over the wine. However, it's reminiscent and intended by Jesus and Luke to remind us of the Lord's Supper. Back in Luke 22, and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it also reminds us of what Jesus did and Luke told us about in the feeding of the multitude back in Luke 9. And after taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the crowd. And so these references are intended to communicate two things. First of all, redemption from sin. And it introduces to us, again, the remembrance that the church would have in the Lord's Supper as often as they would celebrate that this is what Jesus came to do, is to redeem them. And it also makes a theological point that there is a messianic blessing for the world that comes with the kingdom. That's what the feeding of the 5,000 also spoke to. It is the time of mission. It is the time for the church to go into the world and to proclaim the gospel, which is where he will take the story as we conclude next week. Well, the two disciples at this point, their eyes get opened. God opens their eyes, and they see Jesus for who he is. In other words, God waited to just this moment to make a statement. It didn't just sort of happen. It was to make a statement at this point, to finally recognize him. And it's the high point of the episode. And then Jesus disappears. Now you remember, he's God. And soon he's going to no longer be present with them physically anyway, but very much so spiritually. So the disciples believe, and they're so excited that they decide to run back to Jerusalem. And so we read then in verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn with us while, we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So these two men, Jesus disappears, their eyes are open, right? Jesus disappears, and then they're just filled with such excitement and joy. You can almost imagine what's going on in the room, discussing things. Oh, do you remember when he told us about that passage? I wonder if it means this. Isn't that amazing that this speaks about the Messiah and about our Jesus? I mean, you can almost imagine how excited those two men were. And that's how it is when you get converted, isn't it? Perhaps you remember from your own self, is that all of a sudden when your eyes are open and you see the scriptures and you see the connections and you see who Jesus is, your life radically changes and you become an extremely joy-filled person. And you just have to tell people because what else would you do? And so they run all the way back to Jerusalem that night so they can report what they've seen. Because as far as they know, no one else has seen Jesus yet. And so they make it to Jerusalem, they find the eleven, they're ready to tell their story, but they get interrupted and they get told the story about Peter, right? Before they can even report what happened, 
it's told to them, the risen Christ has appeared to Simon Peter. It was sometime after, you know, he had gone to the tomb, went back to his own house, wondering what's going on, but later in the day, Jesus appeared to him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 5, it says that he appeared to Cephas, that is, to Peter. And that's all the detail we have about this appearance to Peter. But after that, the two men get to tell their story in confirmation that, yes, it's true, he is risen because we saw him too. And perhaps they all then continue that evening just telling stories with one another about their experiences and about the scriptures that they now understand at a new level, even though there's a whole lot more coming at Pentecost. What a transformation has occurred because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're left with even more witnesses then to be encouraged to believe that Jesus is the risen Redeemer. He is the one who Scripture foretells is going to redeem us from sin. And He is the one who is revealed in the breaking of bread, even as we celebrate here at this church on a monthly basis. Well, the risen Jesus made many appearances, actually, in those 40-day period before His ascension. So after Jesus' ascension, it was four, or after Jesus' resurrection, it was 40 days until He ascended. And He appeared to a lot of people. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to a group of women. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the, these men on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to the twelve, the twelve with Thomas. He appeared to brothers in Galilee. He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. He appeared to some disciples at the sea. He appeared to James. And he appeared many other times to the apostles in particular. Many appearances over those 40 days. The last one that's reported in Luke to us is where the story continues, starting in verse 36. The risen Jesus will appear to all the apostles and teach and commission them. And then Luke will continue his story with the book of Acts and tell us about the apostles and the Holy Spirit and the founding of the church in the new era. Luke gives a lot of space to this resurrection account of Jesus and his gospel. And again, two theological points are being made by him very strongly. One is that we need to have faith in the Scriptures concerning the Christ and the cross. That's where we learn about it. And we need illumination from God. It's not just enough to be able to recount the story. God has to open our minds to believe actually what we say. And this leads then to an understanding of redemption that gets fuller and fuller in our lives, that Jesus is our ransom price, that He paid our price for our sin, and removed that guilt from us, that that power in our life, and the shame that we're so ashamed of. He is the one who releases us by his resurrection. Now, we can't end a story like this without talking about what perhaps is the most personal consolation of all about the resurrection. And that is, we know that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so too, we will be raised from the dead. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. You see, at that time, at the time of the resurrection, we're going to be released from our personal infirmities. So I'm going to give you six things here about the resurrection, okay? This is the first one. So we're going to be released from our personal infirmities of our own bodies. 
were going to be made, as the scriptures speak, imperishable. That's astounding. Secondly, we're going to be living in bodies that are fit for heaven, that are not subject to death or the signs of it, but will be made glorious forever because we'll have work to do in the new heaven and the new earth. Third, we're going to be freed from the struggles of sin for eternity. Won't that be a relief? In the perfect power of our salvation. Those struggles, spirit against flesh, not going to be there anymore. We will be perfected. Fourth, we're going to enjoy perfectly harmonious relationships with all Christians of all time and all people because everyone's souls will have been perfected. Fifth, we're going to be able to see and fellowship with our dear friends and precious loved ones who have died in Christ and made whole as the people of God. But most importantly of all, on the day of the resurrection, we will be exalted and we'll see Jesus exactly for who He is and who we are as His redeemed ones. And we'll worship Him and enjoy Him in the blessed Holy Trinity perfectly and forevermore. And we live with this hope as Christians from day to day because we've experienced already the power of the resurrection in our life spiritually and that we have been born again to a living hope. And at times, sometimes, we anticipate and look forward to that day with greater excitement than other times, especially in times of weakness and circumstances that we don't like in our life. But it's always the ultimate hope, even when things are going well for us as believers, we know that there's something even better. And we easily get stirred up by it and encouraged by it, and we encourage one another for the resurrection day and looking forward to that. And that's why every Sunday is referred to as the Lord's Day or as the resurrection celebration. That's why we're here this morning. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord Jesus, we are amazed at what we read in the scriptures about you this morning and what we can and what we can understand you spoke to Cleopas and his friend on that road about all of how the Old Testament and prophets speak about you as the redeemer. We thank you Lord Jesus for redeeming us from our sin, for dying on the cross in our place, for rising for our life and our justification. And I pray this morning that if there's anyone here who is close but yet still so far that you would open their eyes and cause them to put their faith in you. And we pray all these things for your sake Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Daniel, for all of those beautiful truth, those pictures of our resurrection with Christ. Joyce, can I ask you to jump back to Hymn of Heaven and just put that chorus up? And can I ask you folks to stand as we respond this morning? Before we sing our final song, I just think we ought to sing this chorus one more time. There will be a day when all will bow before Him. There will be a day when death will be no more. 